Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about Hatshepsut, one of Egypt's most famous and most successful pharaohs from throughout its entire history. Hatshepsut's reign is notable for a couple of different reasons. Uh, first of all, she led Egypt through a period of unrivaled prosperity. Her realm was overflowing with wealth and abundance throughout the entire time she was in charge. And this was due to her doing things like reopening old trade links. She had rich bounties flow into Egypt from around the region, on top of the fact that Egypt also generated a whole lot of wealth itself under its own steam. And this wealth was put to very good use, let me tell you, uh, in massive building campaigns. Hatshepsut built and built and built. She built monuments and temples and statues and shrines and all sorts of stuff. Um, uh, very, very famous for this. Uh, it, it's probably one of the biggest parts of her legacy and, and much of the stuff that was built uh, during her reign is still it's still around. You can still go and see it today in Egypt. But another, another notable thing about her reign uh, was that it was a relatively peaceful one. Her 22 years in power were mostly very peaceful. She maintained a, a strong army which she used to protect borders, the borders of Egypt from potential foreign incursions. In the years leading up to Hatshepsut's reign, you know, the decades beforehand in what was, you know, recent history to these uh, to the people living back then, um, there had been some some conflicts and war, a lot of uh, chaos, and, 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 it, and things really settled down under uh, Hatshepsut, and she was able to string together a, a reign that, again, was, was peaceful, was prosperous, was productive. But I'll tell you this, she had to work... Very, very hard for her position as pharaoh. And, uh, you know, while she was never really meaningfully challenged for power while in charge, uh, as is the case throughout virtually all of recorded history, due to the fact that she was a woman, Hatshepsut faced a lot of difficulties in establishing and legitimizing and holding on to her rule. She managed to do it as, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about it. She managed to to hold on to power throughout this two-decade period or more uh, without any real challenges. But the difficulties that she faced in securing her her, her reign and, and her legacy didn't end after she died, interestingly, but happily. I mean, we'll, we'll talk about those challenges, but she has overcome them. Of course, we're here talking about her today. She has found her place in history as one of the most famous pharaohs in Egyptian, in, in, in Egyptian history. Um, and as I say, today, the results of her reign are clear to see. You can visit Luxor and the Valley of King of the Kings, and, and you can see some of the stuff that she built, see with your own eyes uh, some of the tricks that she pulled in order to take and hold on to power. Before we get uh, stuck into today's story, however, I want to, of course, thank alert listener Jordan Wood for getting in touch with this topic suggestion. Uh, he's listening to the podcast out, out in a dairy farm in the great state of Victoria, so good to hear from another Victorian, Jordan, mate. Good on you. Hope the... Uh, uh, I don't know, the cows are treating you well. I don't know what the traditional salutation for a dairy farmer is. Uh, may may the udders be smooth and the milk be creamy. I don't know. Yeah, probably not that. Anyway, a lot to get across today, of course, so let's get stuck and kick off the story of Hatshepsut. Here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the late 16th century BCE, which I will point out here is over three and a half thousand years ago, an incomprehensibly vast span of time. And again, and I know I've used this analogy before when talking about ancient Egypt, but 
just just to give you a sense of how far back this is, have a listen to this. Our bad habit uh, of compressing history, I guess you could say, the, the further you go back, means that we tend to lump things together into larger and larger chapters of history as we wind back the clock. For instance, we treat the the First and the Second World Wars as distinct historical events these days, just as we do with the Cold War. These are all, you know, th- these all occupy different chapters of, of human history for now. But if we go back further, we treat the Hundred Years' War, for instance, which was three separate conflicts across a century, episode 223, get across it. We treat that today as one historical event, if we're lucky, because sometimes it'll get rolled into the general category of medieval history, and people are sometimes surprised to discover that the the French won the war with gunpowder, given that, you know, as soon as we hear about knights and castles, we think of a, a broad span of a few centuries with no overlap into the early modern period. Anyway. The further back you go, the worse this gets, of course. And Egypt is the perfect example of this. Ancient Egypt, uh, you, you, you probably wouldn't question if someone told you that Cleopatra was, aware, was, was there watching them as they built the pyramids. But as I've said before, as we talked about in the episodes about Cleopatra, episodes 190, 191, get across them. The pyramids were as old to Cleopatra as she is to us. And it's the same story with Hatshepsut. The, the, I mean, three and a half thousand years ago, you might think, oh, well, she was probably around for it, right? Was it that long ago? She was probably around to watch, the, watch them build the great, the great Pyramid of Giza. But no, absolutely not. Just like you or I were not around to watch William the Conqueror invade England on the telly, there's no way that Hatshepsut was around to see the, the pyramids being built. By the time of Hatshepsut, Hatshepsut's birth, the Great Pyramid was already over a thousand years old. So to her, it is as ancient as, again, William the Conqueror or his Lincoln Castle is to us, right? So so don't fall for it. Don't make the mistake of clumping ancient history together like this, especially when it comes to ancient Egypt, a civilization with 3,000 years of recorded history. Anyway, Hatshepsut. She's born around the year 1507 BCE, before the Common Era. That, of course, means we're counting years down, not up. Remember that. The year 1507 is followed by the year 1506. That's not what we're used to today, but we are counting years down as time moves forward. Anyway, she's born as the daughter of the pharaoh Tutmos I and his so-called great wife. What a term to use. The other wife must have absolutely loved that. Anyway, um, his great wife Amos gives birth to young Hatshepsut, uh, his first kid with her. Uh, but he already had a kid to his other wife, uh, who apparently wasn't so great. Her name was Mutnofred, and she had already given birth uh, to a son before Hatshepsut. Uh, the son was confusingly also named Tutmos. Um, and for those of you who have listened to some of the other episodes we've done on, on ancient Egyptian history, maybe what, what's coming next won't come as a surprise to you. But it uh, it's, who oh boy, it's a little nasty, so get ready for this one. Because uh, what happened next was in order to secure his position and give himself the best shot at becoming his dad's chosen heir, even though he was the son of a, a non-great wife, of a common or garden wife, Tutmos the Younger married his half-sister Hatshepsut, given that she was a child of the great wife Amos. This strengthened his claim, the fact that he wasn't a son of the uh, of the great wife meant that you know by marrying the daughter of the great wife instead he was given a, a greater greater claim to his father's position. Ancient Egyptians were nasty, man. I mean, look, marry your sister, you think nothing of it, but then 
I guess um, look, there. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to defend the, uh, the 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 practice of sibling spouses too much, but there are certain advantages. It'd make dealing with the in laws a lot easier, wouldn't it? So you know, fewer presents to buy each Christmas. So you know, definitely has its advantages. Anyway, in fairness, look, he did have a good reason um, to worry about his position. Uh, it's thought that uh, Armos actually did give birth to another another child, another son, Armin Mos, uh, who would have, of course, been Tutmos the first's preferred heir. As a, as a son of his great wife, but that problem ended up sorting itself out for Tutmos the younger. Armin Mos uh, very considerately went ahead and died before their dad, meaning there was never a succession dispute when Tutmos the first died. But there certainly is a dispute even today as to exactly when that happened. Tutmos the second and his sister wife uh, Hatshepsut did inherit the throne from their old man, but we don't know when. Well, actually, I say that Hatshepsut inherited the throne. She didn't really, not officially. Um, it's the, it is thought that she wielded an enormous amount uh, of political power. She may have even been the one pulling the strings behind the throne. You know, she was the one that was really in charge during Tutmos II reign. At one point, as a young adult, Hatshepsut was uh, appointed to the, the position of God's wife of Amun, the second highest political office it was possible for a woman to hold, the first, the first highest, of course, being the queen. So she's kicking goals with both feet here. She's going off. No one can stop her. She's she's occupying uh, the, the the highest and the second highest political office that, that it's possible for a woman in ancient Egypt to hold. Um, being the the god's wife of Amun was uh, particularly notable and, and and important, significant here because Amun was one of the most strongly revered gods at this time, particularly in the ancient capital of Thebes. And so, being the god's wife of Amun essentially made you a demigod. Um, and look, I do like the fairness here as well, because Tutmos II, he went off and got himself another wife, I said. Um, and so it's only fair that Hatshepsut gets a second husband. Now, of course, her second husband is a little less tangible, I suppose, as husbands go, because, of course, he is a god, maybe not quite as good in the sack. Although, actually, having said that, I mean, I should tell you, this is this is not a joke. Um, there is a carving at the Temple of Deir el-Medina of Amun with... A great big stiffy. You should see it. It is enormous. Armon was packing some serious heat. He had a hog that just would not quit. I tell you what. Uh, anyway, anyway. Um, as I said before, we don't know the exact timeline of the transition of power between Tutmos the first and second. Uh, the reason for this is disagreements between astronomy nerds about exactly where the measurements of the stars were taken from. Was it Memphis? Was it Thebes? I don't know. Shut up. Give me your lunch money, you bloody stargazing nerds. Anyway. Most scholars hold that Tutmos the first died around 1493 and was then buried in the Valley of the Kings. Very famous indeed, of course. Uh, first pharaoh we know for sure was actually buried there. Uh, but look, whenever it was, I can tell you this: once Hatshepsut and her brother husband were in charge, she didn't muck about at all in accumulating power and influence for herself. I already talked about her being a, a god's wife. I talked about her being a bit of a power behind the throne. But to be honest, it may not have even really been behind the throne. Inscriptions that have survived uh, about this period of, of ancient Egyptian history, they talk about how Hatshepsut uh, was also granted the throne jointly alongside her brother husband by by their dad. Um, this is almost certainly nonsense. It's almost certainly just political propaganda that was made up by Hatshepsut herself to strengthen her position. But it goes to show by virtue of the fact that she was able to make pronouncements like this, she was able to put p political propaganda out like this without facing a, you know, a widespread revolt, that she was able to wield power pretty openly without having to operate behind closed doors in the shadows, again, pulling the strings from behind the throne. 
During the reign of Tutmos II, um, he had to deal with all sorts of stuff. The, the Kushites, for instance, had a they had a, they had a jolly little tradition of follow, of throwing a full scale rebellion whenever a pharaoh died, and so Tutmos had to clean that one up. Or, or, or honestly, there are a lot of people who think that he just did what Hatshepsut told him. Who knows? She very she very well may have been the one running the show. Um, generals were sent off to deal with other other military issues, uprisings, incursions, unrest, that sort of thing. Um, and and as for Tutmos. He's uh, the second. He stuck around long enough to have two kids, a daughter with uh, Hatshepsut named uh, Neferure and a son with Iset, his other wife. Uh, and in the grand tradition of kings everywhere, he gave this son the same name as himself, again, Tutmos. And this Tutmos, who would go on to become Tutmos III, would prove to be a very famous pharaoh indeed. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Let's talk about, uh, about what happened next here with, with Hatshepsut and how she sees power for herself. I say that Tutmos II stuck around long enough to have two kids. Um, the reason I say that is because it's not thought—it's not thought that he stuck around all that much longer. Uh, we're not one hundred percent sure here. Some scholars think that he lasted around four years as pharaoh. Some say it may have been as long as fourteen. We don't really know for sure, but we do know that he carved it at a relatively young age. He's dead. Sorry about that, mate. Looked like he looked like he died of a terrible illness as well, based on the mum, uh, mummified remains that we found of his. Uh, and to make things worse, he wasn't even buried in the Valley of the Kings. He missed out. And on top of that, when his mummy was found, it was very, very badly damaged. It had been damaged by tomb robbers over the years. One of his arms had snapped off at the shoulder. Uh, the other had been chopped off at the elbow. So a terrible result for Tutmos II, dying early and then having his his, uh, <laughs> his mummy taken to bits. But um, around, when, when Tutmos II died, probably around 1479 again, we're not sure, this meant, right, him dying meant that his son, Tutmos III now, he became pharaoh. But young Tutmos III is just a tiny little kid, right, when his old man shuffles off this mortal coil. And we already know that Hatshepsut isn't, a, isn't afraid to break a few eggs in order to seize and hold on to power. And she sees the opportunity marvellously here, establishing a regency for her stepson. Now, the reason that I say it with that level of intonation to make it clear that this is something quite unusual, of course, in in an ordinary situation, it wouldn't be the stepmother acting as a regent. It would be the mother. Remember, she's not Hatshepsut is not the mother of Tutmos III. That's Iset, the other wife. But Hatshepsut swiftly sidelined Iset and established herself as the big dog, the regent for this young kid outstanding move, especially as she'd already spent years attempting to legitimise herself as one of the heirs of Tutmos I, and now she's going against all the rules by becoming a regent as a stepmom. Also also an aunt, weirdly enough, which is gross. Anyway, um, in, order to, in order to further cement her hold on to power as the regent, uh, she, she had a couple of tricks up her sleeve, of course. She tried a few tricks that had uh, worked quite well for her when she was younger. Because she had her daughter with Tutmos II, that, that young girl called Nefure, you remember, she had her appointed to the position of God's wife of Amun, marrying her daughter to her own imaginary husband. How about that? But that wasn't the only marriage she organised. She also may have had Nefure marry Tutmos III, another generation of sibling spouses. Their family tree is like a bloody palm. There are no branches at all. But as you've already figured out, this was exactly the path that she herself, Hatshepsut, took to power. 
as a God's wife, marrying her half-brother. These are the things that she did to get to where she was. So she's just working off the blueprint, this incest-laden blueprint that has served her so well. She's now setting up her daughter to inherit power in the same way. Anyway, the end result of this is that it makes her not just Tutmos the third's stepmom and aunt, but also his mother-in-law, oh baby, a triple. So even if Tutmos III grew up and tried to end the regency, Hatshepsut would still be very close to the throne with these familiar links. Stepmom, aunt, mother-in-law, not to mention her daughter would be just as powerful as she had been as God's wife and queen. So she's setting as she's setting up a scenario here where no matter what, she's still very close to the throne and still has a lot of influence over the people who are wielding power. And she didn't stop there. She used her claim of divinity as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a God's wife to back up a change to the rules of the regency. And about seven years into, uh, into the reign or the supposed reign of Tutmose III, when obviously she was in charge of the regent, she crowned herself as Pharaoh, saying it was the will of the gods, going against all convention and tradition. She took all the royal titles for herself, and in reliefs and images, she ordered herself to be portrayed in the traditional style of male pharaohs. She portrayed herself as a bloke, fake beard and everything. She still kept feminine grammatical forms and being written about, but outside of that, all these statues and reliefs that were made of her, she was dressed like a bloke, she posed like a bloke, and all of this was aimed, once again, to strengthen her legitimacy as the ruler of Egypt, because the idea of a woman being in charge was almost unprecedented. Egypt had a couple of female pharaohs. There was uh, Serbuk Nerefu back in the 18th century BCE, probably the best example. Uh, she was the first woman to adopt the, the official royal titles as pharaoh, just as Hatshepsut did a few centuries later. There also been other female regents. None of these women, however, they none of them went anywhere near as far as Hatshepsut did in seizing and holding on to power in her own right. Anyway, Hatshepsut didn't just didn't just talk the talk. She wasn't gathering power for power's sake. She also walked the walk. Um, although I will say she did talk the talk quite a fair bloody bit. She was very good with the old political propaganda, which we've already touched upon. Uh, as she claimed more and more power for herself as pharaoh, she ordered public monuments, sculptures, relief, reliefs, all, all sorts of stuff, whatever, she, whatever else she could think of to display details of things like her links to powerful and popular previous pharaohs, like the 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 conquering Amos I, who was her um, great-grandfather, I'm pretty sure, but also probably like her great-great-uncle, I think, and who knows what else, to be honest. But in doing this, again, she she established her credentials as a as as the latest member of this ruling dynasty, and um, she also controlled the narrative around her birth and her coronation. She claimed to be the daughter of Amun in, in a very literal sense. She claimed that Amun appeared to her mother in the form of Tutmos the uh, the first, gave her a good tumble, and then nine months later, out she comes. So, wait this this also means that she's a god's wife of her own. Of her own dad? Oh my goodness, these ancient Egyptians, man, they, they are some real dirty birds. Anyway, when it came to her coronation as pharaoh, she claimed to have, have, have been left the kingdom alongside her brother-husband by Tutmose I, her dad, which was a tenuous claim at, least, at best. But again, as I said, there's all this political propaganda out there telling people that that's how things were, and it worked. The story was being changed day by day by Hatshepsut to make it seem like she had just as much right to the throne as her brother-husband had. 
And all of this political wheeling and dealing, all of this propaganda and this, this you know, changing the narrative, it ended up with her more or less unchallenged for power. And on top of all this, she did things like preparing for herself a great royal tomb in the Valley of the Kings, just as a pharaoh would be expected to. And, I mean, look, all of the stuff we're talking about here, this would be quite unremarkable for a male ruler. It'd be par for the course. But Hatshepsut wasn't taking any chances. She knew that as a woman, her grip on power wasn't as certain as it would be for a man. And so she went to all of these lengths to make sure that no one was going to be able to challenge her rule. And broadly speaking, it worked. These measures that she took paid off. Her reign never faced a meaningful challenge, even when Tutmose III came of age and became her co-ruler, as we'll come to in a little bit. But look, I did say that she could walk the walk, and I want to discuss this, uh, because actions speak louder than words, we know that, and uh, it's no good going around saying you're the pharaoh if you don't back that up by doing things that pharaohs are supposed to do. And what were pharaohs supposed to do? Well, basically, conquer land and build stuff, principally, and Hatshepsut did both of these things. Hatshepsut was fortunate enough to come to power at a time when Egypt was, was very wealthy, uh, she took advantage of the prodigious natural resources that her realm contained and built upon Egypt's wealth, and then also built upon Egypt in a very literal sense, which we'll get to in a second. But throughout her reign, um, Egypt was largely at peace. I said that before. There were no major drawn-out wars to drain both Egypt's coffers and manpower, but she didn't she didn't completely neglect the opportunity to strengthen Egypt to expand where she could and make sure that there weren't these uprisings, incursions and rebellions that had plagued the the, the realm in the past. So she did a very good job of that, of of balancing a a strong military presence with with years of, of, again, as I say, relative peace. But let's talk about the wealth and the prosperity and, and the building projects that uh, that Hatshepsut undertook. Let's talk about some of her uh, her domestic policies. I want to talk about both the domestic and foreign policies, but um, w- w- let's talk about, some, first of all, her, her principal achievements at home. Domestically, as I mentioned, pharaohs were expected to build. This was something that pharaohs did to not just provide for their people in terms of building great big monuments and whatever else and, and improving infrastructure and housing and farms and all that sort of stuff. It was also just designed to show off the grandeur and the power of the office of pharaoh. And Hatshepsut is still known today as one of the most prolific pharaohs when it comes to building things. To give you an idea of just how much stuff she had made, have a listen to this, right? More or less every single major museum worldwide with a display on ancient Egypt has a statue of Hatshepsut. And this is simply because there are so bloody many of them. She built so much. She, she, she had so many just, you know, as one small slice of this particular pie, so many statues of herself built that museums around the world never have any issues finding one to whack on display. And it wasn't just statues. Hundreds and hundreds of buildings were built on her orders. Uh, temples designed to once again legitimize her rule by pushing this narrative of divinity and rightful rule, showing off her power and grandeur. Um, and these temples that she built, they were designed to be more impressive, more opulent, to be grander and richer than anything that her predecessors had built. Hatshepsut was out to prove herself as a great builder, and that's just what she did. The grandest building efforts were all made at the Temple of Karnak in Thebes, expanding and improving the existing temple, restoring sections that had been damaged during previous uh, conflicts and wars. 
And on top of this, as I mentioned, she constructed a grand tomb for herself at, at Deir el-Bari, uh, right next to the Valley, uh, the Valley of the Kings, the Mortuary Temple of Hatshepsut, it's called, and it's still there today. You can go and visit it. So statues, temples, uh, mortuaries, other monuments like obelisks, uh, plenty of these were made under Hatshepsut. But there's one in particular, actually, that I, that I want to mention very quickly here, very interesting indeed. To celebrate her 16th year as pharaoh, Hatshepsut ordered the construction of two massive obelisks. Huge they were. Um, but as they were being quarried out of, the, uh, out, of the, out of the stone, one of them broke. Cracks appeared in the rock while it was being quarried. And, and so the obelisk was just abandoned. It was just left there. Uh, and instead, a third one was made to replace the broken one. No worries, Hatshepsut got her obelisks. But that's not the important part. What I want to talk about here is this broken one. Because the broken one was just left in the quarry, half dug out of the bedrock, the cracks still in it, marks still left on it from the tools that the workers used as they were cutting the stone, lines still drawn on it as guides and markers. And the unfinished obelisk, as it's known, it's still there today. It's it's in a quarry in Aswan where it has been studied to learn about ancient Egyptian stoneworking techniques absolutely fascinating we we know so much more about about this ancient ancient civilization because they stuffed up digging out this uh, this obelisk here so it's really really interesting you can go online and see pictures of it there just again half sticking out of the quarry anyway quite aside from temples and statues and monuments and whatever else Hatshepsut also saw rather more practical infrastructure be built or improved upon I mentioned that she was in power at a time of great prosperity for ancient Egypt, uh, and that prosperity was only increased thanks to her efforts. Uh, Egypt had a, a wealth of natural resources from important but relatively boring stuff like sandstone uh, to rich gold deposits way out in the desert and, and, and mines for gems and jewels and precious stones. And understanding that the riches that these resources generated were key to funding her expansive and expensive building projects, Hatshepsut supported and expanded the exploitation of these natural resources, ensuring her realm stayed as rich as it had been when she took power. But she also secured Egypt's prosperity in ways that went outside her borders in a couple of different ways, uh, commercially, and militarily, let's talk about some of her uh, some of her interna- international. I don't know if it's called international policy. The, the idea of a nation doesn't really exist at this stage. But anyway, her, her foreign policy, we could say, rather than her domestic policy. Hatshepsut made some incredible achievements in the world of commerce, uh, reopening long-lost trade routes with some of Egypt's neighbours, uh, which brought vast amounts of luxury goods into Egypt, further increasing its prosperity. During her ninth year as pharaoh, Hatshepsut organised an enormous expedition to a place known as the Land of Punt. Now, to this day, we still debate exactly where the land of Punt was. Definitely somewhere to the south of Egypt, along the Red Sea, or maybe even towards the Horn of Africa. Somewhere around modern-day Sudan, Eritrea, Djibouti, or, or Somalia. Anyway, Egypt and Punt, they used to have a trading relationship which had broken down over the centuries, and Hatshepsut decided to get it going again. So she used the great wealth at her disposal to put together a huge expedition to the south. She loaded up five ships with hundreds of crew between them, loaded it up with the wealth and the prosperity of Egypt. And look, maybe that doesn't sound like much these days, just a little trip down the Red Sea, only five ships. But remember, this is three and a half thousand years ago. 
Any journey of even a middling distance like this was fraught with peril and uncertainty. But this expedition was an unparalleled success. It renewed the trade links between Egypt and Punt, and the ships returned to Egypt filled with rich and mysterious treasures from the south. Rare substances like, like ebony and ivory, exotic animals like, like, like apes and monkeys, fragrant incenses such as frankincense, and 31 live myrrh trees. Never mind the bloody three kings, little baby Jesus would have been fine with a visit from just a Hatshepsut by the sound of things. These myrrh trees, right, they were taken to Hatshepsut's mortuary in Deir el-Bari that I mentioned before, and, and there they were replanted, and apparently their fossilised remains are still visible today. I'm not 100% sure if that's true or not. I, there were, I saw conflicting sources. But if this happened, if these myrrh trees were transplanted in this way, this is the first recorded instance in history of a non-native tree species being transplanted successfully in this way, which is just incredible. And uh, on, on top of this, that wasn't the only example of, of something happen, happening for the first time in recorded history under Hatshepsut's rule. Um, Hatshepsut also broke ground in the world of cosmetics because of this expedition. This, uh, this frankincense that was brought back to Egypt, Hatshepsut took it after it had been burnt. She ground it up and she turned it into a substance known as coal. That's K-O-H-L and used it as eyeliner. Now, of course, she obviously wasn't the first person to do this. She obviously learnt this technique, discovered, or not discovered, was told that you could do this uh, with this substance coal. But her doing it was the first time it had actually been recorded as having happened. So overwhelmingly, this trade expedition was a huge success. It brought a range of brand new things to Egypt. Hatshepsut herself considered it one of her greatest achievements. And she had the journey immortalized in relief carvings throughout the temples and other monuments that she'd built. Temples and monuments which were decorated and beautified by all the exotic and fancy stuff that had been brought from Punt, like ebony and ivory, once again designed to show off the wealth and opulence of both her and her realm. Finally, we'll talk about one last thing, and it's not going to take too long. We don't have to spend too much time on it here. Her military achievements, her military efforts, which are very interesting, despite the fact that, as I said, her reign was relatively peaceful. Even though Egypt enjoyed a period of relative peace, pharaohs were still accepted to put on a healthy show of force in securing Egypt's borders against foreign incursion and still, ex- still expected to have a, you know, a, a, a reasonable amount of military might. And uh, Amos I, the bloke that I mentioned before, Hatshepsut's great-great-grandpa or great-great-uncle or whatever, um, he had conquered invading enemies to the north of Thebes. He, Thebes, his, his triumphs were still celebrated by ancient Egyptians uh, in Hatshepsut's time. And so in order to show that she was cut from the same cloth, she would send troops off into neighbouring regions to the Sinai Peninsula, to Syria, Nubia, uh, to show that she meant business, maybe do a bit of looting, bring back some wealth and treasure, you know how it goes. And look, we don't have the best records of these military campaigns. Hatshepsut actually, I mean, look, she could have been taken, she could have been undertaking them for show or for loot and plunder, or maybe there was a legitimate military provocation from Syria or Nubia. Maybe she was getting on the front foot to, in, in order to forestall invasion. We don't really know. But we do know that ancient Egyptians at this time greatly prized secure borders to stave off potential invasions, and Hatshepsut certainly provided those. Her, her approach to, to military affairs was 
much like else in her career, designed to strengthen her leadership and rule. And this approach led to a very interesting consequence when her stepson, Thutmose III, the bloke who you know she had, had, had claimed the regency from, um, when he came of age. Now, Thutmose III, after coming of age, he had every reason to seek to, seek to rule in his, own, in his own right. Hatshepsut didn't have as strong a claim to rule as he did, hence all her efforts to secure her leadership in her own right. And this seemed to just work because when Thutmose III came of age and became a co-ruler, he was politically sidelined by Hatshepsut very effectively and never held much power at all while she was still around. And what's even more interesting about this is the position given to him by Hatshepsut once he came of age. She put him in charge of Egypt's armies. So I bring this up while we're talking about her military approach. She put her stepson, who had a better claim to the throne than she did as a bloke, in charge of the Egyptian military. He was essentially the most powerful general in the realm, the rightful pharaoh in many people's books, and now he's in charge of the armed forces. So why didn't he just attempt to overthrow Hatshepsut with his strong claim backed up by, you know, an entire army? But he just didn't do this. And it's very difficult to to explain why. He seemed more happy to remain on the sidelines, politically speaking, as he took charge of these minor military campaigns that uh, that Hatshepsut sent him off on during her realm. Truly remarkable, but it goes to show the political skill of Hatshepsut and just how wise she was to go to the lengths that she did in securing her position as pharaoh. Someone who was in charge of Egypt's armies and had a better claim than her decided not to challenge her rule because of how well she had entrenched herself as pharaoh. And as I said a couple of times, throughout her 22-year reign, Hatshepsut was never meaningfully challenged for power. Egypt flourished under her rule. It became richer and safer and grander. However, everything ends, of course. And in around 1458 BCE, at the age of around 50 or so, Hatshepsut died. According to a bloke who claims to have found her mummy, a claim that as yet seems to have been unproven, she died of an infection after having a tooth extracted, but again, we don't know if that's true or not. Whatever the case, Hatshepsut died after a long and peaceful and prosperous reign that saw Egypt flourish and grow with new temples and monuments, expanded infrastructure and trade, and military security and stability. But after Hatshepsut's death, she faced a new enemy altogether, a threat to the recognition of her vast legacy as one of Egypt's greatest pharaohs. And who put this legacy under threat? Her stepson, Thutmose III, who began a campaign of expurgating Hatshepsut and all of her achievements from the historical records. I'll be honest with you here, I did a fair bit of reading about this and I still don't really understand why he did this. There seem to be a lot of differing opinions on the reasoning and motivation behind Thutmose III's attempts to remove Hatshepsut from history. Um, And there's a good reason why it's so confusing, because it's very difficult to piece together a story that makes sense as to why Thutmose III would have done this. Now, we can talk about some of the theories and try to evaluate them here. The most obvious theory is, of course, that he felt like he had had his position as pharaoh usurped by Hatshepsut, uh, and he wanted to erase her memory as an act of vengeance. Now, you think, okay, on the, on, the, on the face of it, that makes sense, but it doesn't tally with three important factors here. Firstly, 
If he resented and hated Hatshepsut so much, why did she put him in charge of Egypt's armies? And why didn't he just move against her straight away when, when he could have backed up by the troops that he commanded? Secondly, Tutmos didn't really begin his campaign of historical revisionism until 25 years after Hatshepsut had died. So he obviously wasn't burning with impatience to erase her from history, hardly the sort of thing you'd wait two and a half decades to do if you're feeling you're like your position as Pharaoh had been usurped and you know, you're out for revenge. And thirdly, Tutmose III also had himself buried in a mortuary temple right next to Hatshepsut's. Hardly the sort of thing you'd, you'd do if you, if you hated someone in their memory, bury yourself right next to them. So it's all very confusing, the idea that Tutmose III hated Hatshepsut. It doesn't quite add up. So what, what are some other reasons that there could have been? Other theories suggest that Tutmose III made these, made these erasures out of political expediency to ensure a smooth transition of power to his son, Amenhotep II, as he didn't want anyone with links to Hatshepsut to come out of the woodwork and challenge his succession, make sure his son you know, took the throne smoothly after he died. Um, and, and maybe the reason that he waited so long to do this was because he had to wait for anyone and everyone who had ever been involved with Hatshepsut during her lifetime, anyone who might have objected to him trying to erase her from history. He just had to wait for them to die so that explains him waiting for such a long period of time before pulling the trigger on uh, on erasing her or, or trying to erase Hatshepsut from history. Uh, again, I don't know if this theory is true. Um, there's another theory that suggests that Hatshepsut's reign was so unorthodox and broke so far from tradition as she was a woman that Tutmose III sought to erase evidence of Hatshepsut's rule purely to preserve the conservative traditional culture of ancient Egypt. He may have been concerned that Hatshepsut would serve as an example to other women seeking to empower themselves to show them that women could stand as equals to men, which obviously really would have upset the apple cart back then. But ultimately, we don't know. We don't know why Tutmose III did what he did. We can certainly make educated guesses at it, but we don't know for certain. But what's what's really disappointing about this this campaign of uh, of historical erasure, you know, whether it was made in the name of political pragmatism or, or social stability or whatever else, what's really disappointing about all this is on top of uh, of Tutmos III attempting to erase Hatshepsut from history, is that he attempted as well to pass off all of her achievements as his own. He tried to rewrite history to say that he had succeeded his father, Tutmose II, as pharaoh, that no one else had been involved, that he was responsible for all of the prosperity and the wealth and the achievements that, of course, were directly attributable to Hatshepsut and her reign. And in fairness to Tutmose III, he did go on to become a great pharaoh. He ruled for three decades in his own right. He expanded his realms, its borders. He transformed it into the largest empire that ancient Egypt had seen. Generally speaking, he's put alongside Ramesses II, episode 116, get across it, as one of the greatest leaders in Egyptian history. I'm not trying to take anything away from him here, but I don't know why he had to try to take something away from his predecessor. Another great pharaoh who enabled, ultimately, his campaigns of stunning conquest by filling Egypt's coffers for him. One of the reasons that Tutmose III went on to be such a great pharaoh, one of the reasons he was able to fund all of the campaigns that he went on, all the things that he did, all the achievements that he made, was because he had the wealth and the prosperity of Egypt to back him up. And so much of that wealth and prosperity was owed to the reign of Hatshepsut. In any case, thankfully, 
Tutmose III failed to erase Hatshepsut from history. Obviously, we're here talking about her today. And her legacy has thankfully stood the test of time. She remains one of the most famous and iconic pharaohs in Egyptian history, alongside other powerful women like Cleopatra. She did far too much to be lost to history. The clever political machinations she undertook to solidify her rule resulted in two decades of prosperity and growth, of rich temples and opulent buildings in a legacy that is carried through to the present day. Hatshepsut, one of the greatest women of the ancient era. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. Great to go a long, long way back in history. Do some properly ancient history here all the way back, what, several thousand years ago. I do hope you enjoyed it as much as I, uh, I did putting this episode together for you. But I want to get across something else here before we get to the boring housekeeping stuff. And once again, I, I have to apologize. I'm so, so sorry to people who are still experiencing disruptions to the podcast feed. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the fact that I know that these issues were flying around, that people weren't able to use their preferred podcast apps in order to access Half-Assed History. I don't know why this problem is persisting. The The fix that I put in place was supposed to solve this issue. It has not. I realize that. And I I can only, well, I was going to say I can only apologize. No, I can do a lot more than apologize, which is what I'm doing. I'm now talking to podcast apps individually in order to try to get them to update their, their whatever they're using to scrub RSS feeds for the correct one. The root of the problem is this, and the reason I'm saying this is because if you have any idea, if you have any competency or knowledge of how this this sort of stuff works whatsoever, please get in touch and give me some advice on how to fix it. Because what's happening is this. Half a sister used to use an old RSS feed. It no longer does. It now uses a new updated feed, which is what you're listening to right now as you listen to this episode. For some reason, there are a handful of apps that just have not updated to the new feed, and I don't know how to get them to do it, right? I've updated it everywhere that I can. I've talked to all of the major places that index podcast feeds. For some reason, some of them are still going off the old one, which now, I'm sorry to say, has just broken. Like, I was trying to keep it together with spit and string. It is just it is just not working anymore, and I can't get it to work anymore. And I'm so sorry. I really am. I don't know what else to say. I'm sorry. I'm trying to fix this. If you've got any, like any information helps. So if you're having problems, if you can, if you can email in with uh, the the app that isn't working for you, uh, with with any other details that you can provide, I'm going to try to get this fixed for people. I know that podcasts are a big uh, a big part of people's weekly routines and rituals. This is not good enough. Having disruptions like this is is not what you want. Being forced to go and use a different app or a different uh, provider, whatever else, it's a pain in the bum, I know, and I'm sorry. I'm trying to get it fixed. I'm hoping that within the next couple of weeks, I can either either fix the problem altogether or just contact enough apps individually that most people who listen to the show on whatever app you listen to, it's there and available for you. But once again, please accept my apologies. This isn't good enough and I'm trying to fix it. Um, again, get in touch with anything and everything, feedback, thoughts, advice, suggestions, just data as well. Is it not working for you? How is it not working for you? Uh, what's the app you're using? What are the problems that you've had? Anything's going to help me. Halfosister.net, contact form there. Please do get in touch. Again, my apologies. Thanks to the people who are writing in. With everything from feedback to topic suggestions, it's great to hear from listeners. Sorry that I don't get back to everyone, but of course, just get so many emails that, uh, that it's, it's, not really, uh, it's not really a realistic thing for me to do. But I do read every single one. And I'm very, very appreciative. I'd also very appreciative, of course, the people supporting the show on Patreon. Patreon.com slash half History is the place to go if you want to snag some extra bonus content from behind the scenes. 
uncut episodes, show notes, all sorts of other stuff, and exclusive patron-only merch. But the other merch available on the Merch Shop, of course, as I say, every week. Head to the website, click through the link, and you'll find it there. That is that for this week of Half House History. Back next week, looking forward to your company then. And in, until then, of course, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Couch Potato Famine. We've been talking about ancient Egypt here, and Couch Potato Famine has a question to do with ancient Egypt, asking, which pharaoh is buried beneath the food pyramid? <laughs> <laughs>